But in the end, I think a lot of them who did cooperate did it because they didn't want it to happen to somebody else. You know, they knew that either someone was on the streets and they could be harming other people or that they were in prison and were going to get out at some point and did not want them to be, you know, a risk to another person. Some of the most difficult stories journalists work on involve violence and trauma, but often these are the most important and impactful stories that we could ever work on. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Rachel DeSalle was a reporter at The Plain Dealer from 2002 until 2020. During her time there, she worked with reporter Leila Atassi on reinvestigating rape, a series that led to the testing of nearly 14,000 rape kits, which led to indictments in nearly 800 cold cases in Cleveland. Rachel also worked on Case Closed, a series with Andrea Simakis that examined systematic failures of Cleveland police through the experiences of a woman who had to solve her own rape case. Rachel recently wrote about trauma journalism in the time of coronavirus for the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, tell me a little about how you got interested in journalism. Yes. So I honestly started doing journalism when I was in high school. So I was one of those high school journalism nerds. But um, I, I think it's a cute story. I had a teacher, a history teacher who maybe thought I was a little mouthy in class and took that opportunity to invite me to join the Lakewood High Times was the name of the paper. And the thing that honestly attracted me was that we got these really cool buttons that said question authority on them and we wore them around the school. So yes, it's a very high school thing, but on a deeper level, you know, I was the oldest of six kids. I lived in a pretty poor family and the idea that I, as a 14, 15-year-old, could ask questions to people, especially people in power, and that they would have somewhat of an obligation to respond to me seemed like a really cool thing. I guess I only figured out as I got into it and down the road that cool power also comes with a lot of responsibility to the community and, and to the stories that we tell. But it was, it was a good way to hook me. Yeah. As a fellow journalism nerd, there's a lot familiar there. Even the uh, question authority pins, the righteous indignation with which you, you go out and, and ask these questions. Feeling empowered, I guess, is, is the best way to put it. So how did you end up at the, uh, the Plain Dealer? So I graduated from Kent State University. And right after that, like most folks getting out of journalism school, I worked at a small publication in Virginia for about a year. And then I got the opportunity to return to The Plain Dealer, which was my hometown paper where I had done an internship. At the time, you know, I, I think that part of me thought it'd be cool to kind of explore different states and cities. But I, I really, in my heart, thought that if I could do good journalism and tell good stories, that there was no better place to do it than the place that I was from and where I grew up and where I really felt a strong connection to the community. So, you know, in, in the introduction, I mentioned two series that you worked on for The Plain Dealer, examining how police investigated rape in, in Cleveland. Can you talk about the origin of those two projects? Like many reporters started out doing crime reporting, being the young person that gets sent to every horrible thing that happens and is expected to know how to handle these very emotional and traumatic and weighty topics. And along the way, I kind of 
started to focus in on covering sexual assault. It was always something that I was interested in because a lot of other reporters didn't want to have anything to do with it. Mostly, I think, because the stories were complicated, they were difficult to report, and I was probably attracted to it for that reason. And I also felt like I was able to talk to victims and survivors in a way sometimes that other reporters were really uncomfortable with. And so over the years, I think that I, I kind of took a turn from telling those stories in a way that was focused on individual cases to really kind of taking an eye more towards the system that handled them. And a lot of that was because of what I would hear from, you know, victims and survivors over the years about their experiences and how sometimes their experiences in the criminal justice system were, were so difficult and, and sometimes even as traumatic as having been assaulted. And so part of looking at that, you know, myself and Layla Atassi covered a pretty significant serial killer case in Cleveland. Anthony Soul raped and killed 11 women in Cleveland and also assaulted probably five or six more that we know of who survived. And in covering that story, which was not only a tragedy because of the loss of life, but because of the fact that there were so many opportunities to catch this person that did this that didn't happen for so many reasons. It just seemed like he was the luckiest serial killer in the world for all of the ways in which he got away. And we really took that opportunity to start examining this system of investigating cases and how many of the victims were treated. And we found this conundrum that, you know, the Anthony souls of the world knew exactly the women that would not be believed. And they went after them. Those were their victims. And yet police who you would think would understand that the most, it kind of evaded them when they were investigating these cases. And they often didn't take cases seriously when those very types of women reported them. And one of the most kind of egregious ways we, we found this was when we started looking at sexual assault evidence kits or what people call rape kits. They were collected in pretty high numbers throughout the 80s and 90s, but often were not tested. And there was a Human Rights Watch report, I know that we read early in our reporting, that kind of looked into this phenomenon in Los Angeles. And we started asking questions about it in Cleveland when we were reporting on the Anthony's soul case. And at first, Cleveland didn't have an answer. They told us they had no idea how many kits that they had and how many of them had been tested, but they did agree to kind of count and, and find out. And ultimately, after years of, of counting, it was over 5,000 kits that they had that either hadn't been tested or hadn't been fully tested for DNA, maybe only were tested for blood type or for the presence of semen. So they agreed to test those kits, um, but that only went back to 1993. They're still in the process of testing thousands more. And through writing about those stories, Layla and I were able to kind of cover the results of that, which, which again were pretty unprecedented and overwhelming, the number of cases that they did start to test and started to get hits to potential offenders, you know, investigative leads and the number that got connected. And we ended up having people that were connected to 20 or more cases. Wow. And that evidence was just sitting there waiting to be tested all those years. Yeah, I think, you know, police did not see those kits as an investigative tool. 
they saw those kits as a way to prove a case. So if they did have a case that was strong enough to make an arrest and strong enough to go to court, that they could use that as evidence to say, yes, we are sure that this is the right person. And it was only after we got more familiar with DNA that people started to say, wait, we can actually use this to connect people. So there's a little bit of, you know, issues with training and, and really the way in which they respond to victims. And then you have to run that alongside of the fact of all of us, you know, learning about DNA and having something to connect it to, because at the same time, states were just starting to collect DNA from criminals and from, you know, people who were arrested for crimes. And so all of that was kind of happening at once. And it, I would say it probably took longer to catch up with this than it should have. But it was also, I think, a learning process as well. I would imagine, I mean, DNA, even though we all feel like it's been around for a while, and, and certainly the, you know, the DNA was being collected by the police, the technology to pinpoint people is, is relatively new. And so just sort of changing, I guess, the attitude of, of the police to see that as a potential tool to help them was probably sort of a culture change. And it took, as a technology advanced, you know, convincing them that that was something of importance. I'm curious, you were, became aware of these kits. How did you compel the police to, uh, to begin doing testing or request the police to do testing? I mean, it's a very journalistic story, I guess. We just called and emailed them incessantly. So we got answers about how many existed and what was going to happen with them. So I think fairly quickly, the police chief at the time acknowledged that those kids needed to be tested if they were there. It was really very bureaucratic, I don't know, bullshit, I would say, that <laughs> prevented them from being tested in the first place. We had a state crime lab that basically said, yes, send us anything that you want tested. But then all of the rules and regulations it wrote up basically said to the police, like, only send us stuff that you have to send us for trial because we don't have the capacity to test everything. So there was some of that. And I also think that the police, they didn't have a huge interest in investigating even more cases to that level themselves, because beyond the simple fact that they didn't test a lot of the kits that they had asked women to have collected, really, they didn't put much other investigation into those cases. So it's not like they, like they had worked tirelessly to solve these cases and just this one last piece had to fall into place. When we started reviewing the files in these cases, we found some of them were literally one page. And some of them were closed after less than 24 hours or less than three days. So I, I think that it's not really only about the biological evidence, it's about the effort altogether that was being put into these investigations, which in some cases, you know, especially if the victim was a, a child or from a predominantly white neighborhood or the attack was a stranger attack that had gotten media attention, there would be a lot, a lot of effort, a significant effort put into that case. But the case was reported by someone who perhaps had a drug problem or a mental health issue, or even was a child from a family that couldn't really push for much of an investigation or had some distrust for the criminal justice system, often there was, was almost nothing done to catch somebody. So how difficult was it for you to get 
get information from the police, records from the police, an opportunity to look at these things. Did you use FOIA to get some of this or use other methods? We put in a lot of public records requests and we had some negotiations with the city attorney at the time to get a number of files. We sort of lucked into a situation where the county prosecutor at the time took a pretty solid interest in this. He's quite a character, his name is Tim McGinty, and he had a concern and some of his staff had a concern that even after these kits were tested and there was possible information to reinvestigate, that Cleveland police would not do so, that they didn't have the capacity, they didn't have the right number of detectives to really look into these cases. And so they kind of bullied their way into forming a task force. They basically said, well, we're gonna do this and you know, you guys should join it and be a part of it, but if not, we're gonna do it anyways. And they really gathered up resources. You know, They got some buy-in from the state attorney general at the time, who is now the governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, in terms of some crime analysts and some other folks to pitch in with these investigations. Because, I mean, ultimately it was thousands of cases that needed to be reinvestigated. That's a heavy lift in a city where the sex crimes unit had been understaffed for 30 or more years, pretty much since it was formed. So this task force formed and Layla and I kind of very politely requested access to it. And the Cleveland police very much did not want us to be in the room, but the county prosecutor, he said, come on in. (laughs) So we took that opportunity for years, once a week, sit through these meetings where they were looking through these cases, you know, who was the identified offender, potentially, what could they do to look into it? There were even cases where they had a DNA profile that was linked to another case, but they did not know who the person was. And so they would kind of try to figure out how they could triangulate, you know, based on all these cases, who the likely suspects were. So I think for us, being able to see that happen the way that it should happen gave us a good insight into what needed to be done in the long term so that these cases were investigated properly. Another thing that happened was that victim advocacy was made central to how these cases were handled. There was a lot more support for a lot of the victims. You know, they got a knock on the door and police were like 20 years later saying, hey, we're here to solve your case now. And, you know, some people were overjoyed because they lived in fear and other people were pretty angry that they had been treated so poorly by police in the past and now that they were expected to drop everything in their lives and and cooperate with these cases. But in the end, I think a lot of them who did cooperate did it because they didn't want it to happen to somebody else. You know, they knew that either someone was on the streets and they could be harming other people or that they were in prison and were going to get out at some point and did not want them to be, you know, a risk to another person. Besides the the number of cases that the cold cases had been solved from this, did you see any other systematic changes for the police or or maybe the prosecutors? So, you know, definitely through the prosecutors, I think they were trying to find ways to incorporate what they were learning into how they handled current cases. There was a bit of frustration. I mean, I felt a bit of frustration in seeing that cases that were reported 20 years ago we're getting a much higher level of attention and investigation than cases that were being reported 
every day in the city of Cleveland because the same kind of underlying systemic problems of having a sex crimes unit that did not have enough detectives, that didn't have the right kind of training or support, that was still a thing. So I think that they were getting these hits from all of the new rape kits that were being tested, but their ability to do the follow-up still wasn't what it needed to be. And so that was something that I was always thinking about. And I actually worked with some local researchers. We had a lot of conversations about this. I did write stories kind of comparing whether current cases that were reported were making it over to the court system any more often, you know, over to the grand jury to even become a case in court. And there was a little bit of an uptick in that, but it was not overwhelming. And when I was talking to victims who were reporting rapes, their experiences with police hadn't changed all that much. They were still kind of frustrated with the amount of information they got, with the way that they were treated. And the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, which does a lot of support for victims and survivors, was also hearing the same thing. I mean, I think they felt there was really good intentions, but not kind of the money and the effort put towards cultural change to, to take these really big lessons and change the system so that it was a better experience, not only just for survivors, but also, you know, because solving one case prevents another one. So how long did this, did you work on this story or the series? 10 years. 10 years. Did you ever get discouraged or, or what was it that was maybe kind of pushing you forward with it? It really just felt unfinished. It's still slightly unfinished. Sometime in the next month or so, the prosecutor's office and the task force will finish the last 200 cases they have to investigate. And even though I'm, I no longer work for the Plain Dealer, I have a really strong urge to use that opportunity to look back. I think ultimately they will have indicted cases that are linked to a thousand victims. And for me, that's so huge and such an opportunity to look back in a big way at what not only Cleveland can learn from something like this, but what other cities that have the same struggles can learn. Because if you think about that, it's just how do you have a, cases of a thousand unsolved victims just kind of sitting there, cases that were, were solvable, you know? And so it just leads me to a lot more questions and wanting to do a lot more work on that. So there was another project that you worked on, Case Close, that, that actually, I, I guess it's similar, but also different in, in a way because it seemed more focused on a particular case. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think that Case Close was a way to kind of zoom in on the system as it is now. In Cleveland, when we started writing all these stories about rape kits, I, I think a lot of people did think, okay, problem solved. And this case allowed us to really examine one case very closely rather than thousands of cases kind of from afar, looking for patterns and things like that. In the case of Sandy Fedor, you know, she reported her sexual assault in 2015. Right away, she reported it. And it was kind of confounding that all of the information to catch her attacker was presented to the police almost immediately. And yet it seemed nearly impossible to get them to do an actual investigation. And the case was passed from detective to detective as they got busy or moved to other units. 
And it was very frustrating for her because she felt like she had an inability to move forward in her life, knowing that this person was still out there. And I think that this series kind of allowed us to examine the impact of the system on people who report crimes and don't get the response that they think the system should be giving them when they step forward and tell what happened to them. I think we often, we don't get to go deep into that, you know, what that trauma is of an unresolved crime. And for her, it was pretty significant. It took us quite a while to get to a point where we could talk about it the way that we needed to and kind of gain trust about how the story would be told. I think her first objective, of course, was to make sure that this person was arrested and that they, you know, were prosecuted. But also, she very much wanted nobody else to be treated like that by the police and by the system. Did she come to you or was this a case that you had learned through your reporting? She ended up coming to me through some other sources. I, I think at one point she was so frustrated she reached out to a civil rights attorney in town and said, you know, can we sue the police to make them investigate this case? And that attorney said, no, that's not possible. Like we can't compel them to do their job, but I think you should maybe call and talk to this reporter. She also was working with a, a very trusted therapist and the therapist knew me from my coverage of a school shooting years earlier. The therapist had worked with families involved with the shooting. And so we had a pretty good trust level of how I reported on things. And so they both approached me together and asked if I would sit down and talk to Sandy and just kind of hear what she had to say about the case and what she was going through. And we, we went from there. I find all of this so fascinating and heartening in many ways because it shows kind of the the strengths of different different approaches in journalism that that you have sort of the the personal one on one where you're talking to victims, but then you're also looking at a big picture and you're you're examining systems and you're looking at data and information and files to try to tell a bigger story. You know, examining systematic deficiencies that need to be brought into the light. So you know. Kudos to you for and the people you worked with for working these types of stories because they, you know, they do make change, even though maybe it's frustrating that some things feel like they're un, still unresolved. But being able to pull a lot of this stuff into the light, I think, is just incredibly admirable. You, you said it kind of early on in our conversation that some people find it difficult to do these types of stories. Why do you think that is? I mean, I, I think that any time that part of your job is is listening to a person describe in detail the worst moments of their life, that that is difficult. And doing it at the level that we need to do it to tell a good story, you know, you really have to take a lot of that in. At the same time, you have to walk a line that I think can be really uncomfortable for people of being able to have those conversations and do those interviews and balance how to treat somebody who's entrusting you with that information well and also include all of the journalistic considerations we need to have when telling these kind of stories. So for instance, I have lengthy conversations with people about what the process is that I have to follow when writing a story. I think some journalists have trouble doing that from the get-go because 
they want to write a story. They don't want to scare someone away. They're just like, hey, talk to me and I'll write a story and it'll be fine. I really feel like upfront I need to tell somebody all of the things that I do when writing a story in terms of gathering information, trying to make sure things are as accurate as possible, questions editors may ask, how we figure out what pieces of something to share with readers and what not to, because I think that they need to know that all if they're going to share something deeply personal and traumatic. And it's just not easy for people to do. And it's, I'm not saying it's easy for me to do, but I think it's necessary for people to feel, especially if they haven't had a lot of experience with reporters, to feel okay about the process and what they're going through. And it also lets them know up front, this might be a heavier lift, a more involved thing than they were thinking it might be. There's probably a lot of folks who think that the making of a newspaper story is kind of magic. And those of us that do it know it's the opposite of magic. It's kind of ugly at times and stressful. But I think to do a kind of a high level story where you really are getting inside someone's perspective and what they went through, you have to take those, those steps. So yeah, that's not for everybody. I mean, when you get to know somebody that well, and you're watching videos of them trying to get police to listen to them or describing what happened to them. It's emotional. And so on this particular story, Andrea Samakis and I worked together, and I don't think that either of us could have gotten through it on our own. And, and that may sound a little, I don't know, silly, but you have to have a trusted person to bounce all these things off of. Do you have any strategies for, you know, dealing with things that may come suddenly become very heavy for you? I think there's all the the normal things that we talk about, you know, like taking breaks and exercising, but honestly, like sometimes you just would sit there, I mean, I we had one particular time that I know that Andrea and I were working with Sandy on something and we both left separately and texted each other when we got home that like we just cried the entire time we drove home in our car, in our separate cars, you know, because it was really, really difficult. I mean, it was hard stuff and we just had to admit that it was getting to us. I think a similar thing happened when we watched some videos of interviews in prison with the offender and the interviews were so inept, so poorly done that we were angry. And I was like, I think I just need to like go scream for a while. Because when you understand it that closely, you just don't, you don't get why something so important was done with so little thought. And so, yeah, I mean, there is no great way to deal with someone else's trauma or your own trauma. There's ways to like give yourself a break and to take a step away. But in the middle of a big story like that, you can't really take a step away. So maybe you can take like a day away and, you know, garden or jog or whatever anybody else does to, to give themselves some headspace. But ultimately, I think for me, at least, I just have to kind of plow through it and then know that I will probably crash afterwards for a little bit. I literally almost get like, my family knows this, but the week after a big story like that publishes, it's almost as if I have like a virus or an illness. Like I have a fever I am worn out, wrung out, you know, like tired, almost like I'm sick, but it happens almost every time. So I'm sure there's some kind of, you know, reaction that I'm having to my body finally saying, okay, now you can, now you can deal with all this stuff. 
I'm sure for others it's different and maybe healthier than, than for me. In 2016, as a DART Center of Journalism and Trauma Ackberg Fellow, you received training in the neurobiology of trauma and trauma-informed interviewing and storytelling techniques. Tell me about that. What was it that, you know, obviously don't give me, the, give, me the, give me all the training, but what were some of the things that you learned that you were able to apply to your storytelling and your reporting? One of the biggest things that has helped me the most from that fellowship and from kind of other research on trauma is understanding the mechanics, I would call it, it's biology, but many other things as well, of how people's brains process trauma. It's just so incompatible with the way that we do reporting unless you understand it. As reporters, we often have a set list of questions we want to know and details that we want to explore. And we want them to be in some sensible order. And for people that have been through a traumatic event, whether it's a sexual assault or a shooting or a natural disaster, their memories just are not often stored that way. And it takes a lot of work to kind of extract the things that we need to extract working with them and to get them in that right order and make sure that things are accurate and acknowledge when there might be something that they just won't be able to remember accurately or at the level of detail that, that we would like and figure out how to fill in those gaps. And so I think understanding that helps me do it. I know you mentioned when you begin the, the interview process, you, you sort of explain what, what you do, your process and everything else. Is there anything else you do to, you know, when you start that relationship and sort of establish that level of trust with a source who may have been going through trauma to help them, you know, learn to trust you, learn them to be, feel comfortable in talking to you? Sure. So the very first time I interview someone, especially about whatever the trauma is that we're discussing, I let them have an open narrative and I interrupt them as little as possible. So the way I would say it is something like, you know, start wherever you feel like you need to start and just tell me about what happened and what you think I need to know. And unless I'm, I'm very confused or I need to kind of gently make sure I'm understanding or orienting something, I just let them talk because they don't often start where you would think. I mean, I, I remember interviewing someone and it was a story about lead poisoning and she had become homeless in her family because of lead poisoning. And I asked her to start telling me the story of what happened. And she started telling the story with her father being killed when she was 11. And it kind of threw me for a minute. But once I stepped back, I realized like, this is one of many things that has happened to this person. And they needed to give me an idea of how to frame that for them. You know, this is one of many awful things that has happened. And what I think she was signaling without even knowing it was that she had a deep mistrust of lots of systems because of things that had happened in her life. So that for me is helpful, you know, letting someone have that open narrative and then picking pieces of the story to kind of go over in more detail. One of the other things I do, especially I think with younger people when I'm talking to them is I give them an option of how they would like to do that. So, you know, I'm 40, so people my age and, and maybe a little older are more used to having in-person conversations. Younger people, I have 
reported with text messages where I ask them a question and they give me a lot of answers or through emails, or I had one young woman who really liked to write and I gave her a journal and I would ask her a question in a journal and she would write some answers. So I think it's also finding how other people are comfortable with communicating, especially really difficult details. And you might have some people that doing that face-to-face is just so hard. They really shut down. And so sometimes you have to find another way to open up and get a common understanding of what the story is, what the trauma was, and then you can ask more detailed questions kind of down the road. Just sort of reading between the lines, I think patience seems to be something else that you need to to have in this is understanding that, yeah, you know, you take the idea that you have deadlines out of the equation. It's more about, you know, going at the pace of the person you're talking to and allowing them to, you know, reveal as they feel comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. I... I'm a mom and I have three kids and I can't imagine ever just being like, sit down in front of a reporter and tell them everything about something in your life that was difficult. You know what I mean? Would I want to do that myself? It would be hard even for me to do. And so I think we do expect a lot of people who were asking to participate and a little patience from us, I, I do think goes a long way in giving people the opportunity to take a break or You know, I always tell people if at any point this is not working for you and it doesn't feel right and it's causing you harm, you just need to be able to let me know because it's not about me or a story. Like if it's causing damage, like we can work with it or we can step away. I think we need to do that. And as a reporter, like no reporter ever wants to work for something on like six months and then have someone say, I don't know if I could do this, you know, but this is a story for us and it's a life for other people. And so we, we just have to be able to do that. Have you ever walked away from a story? Have you ever said, I think the, probably the best thing to do is just not to, you know, continue or maybe at this time, we, maybe we shouldn't pursue it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, luckily none of them have been as far down the line as, you know, having done like six or nine months of work, but there have been some where, you know, we've had a conversation that, it just doesn't think seem like we're going to be able to do what we need to do here because maybe, you know, you need to do a little bit more work with a counselor or maybe the story isn't going to be able to be what you really want it to be because of the facts or the details or what I've been able to gather. Yeah. We're talking about really what can be some of the hardest reporting that a, that a journalist can do. And, you know, you said that it, it can be difficult and many people sort of turn away from it. Why do you think it's important to do this type of reporting? I've done a lot of kind of investigative reporting and I love data as much as the next person because it gives us a really important perspective on the breadth of a problem or the ways in which a problem is affecting communities or populations. But in terms of getting humans to connect with the story and care about it. I don't think there's any other better way than having a a trusted character to tell it. You know, I think about Sandy in this story and a couple months, well, maybe a month or two after the story ran, she was like in a fast food drive-thru and the woman in front of her like purchased her meal and told the, the cashier, you know, 
tell the woman in the car, she recognized her from the photos and said, you know, tell Sandy Fedor, she's so brave. And I just wanted to purchase her meal for her and tell her to thank you for telling her story. Like that to me, like is really a measure that you don't get for a lot of stories where people in a community were so deeply involved with the story thought about it so much that they recognize the person months later and, and find a way to like reach out with a small gesture. And also I think that does translate into people acting. And I, I don't mean in ways like changing laws and stuff like that, but, but a deeper kind of thing where they change their own ways that they react to something. I mean, when it comes down to it, we wrote about a woman who was in the city of Cleveland from a suburb and she was admittedly using drugs, which was hard for her to admit that that was the situation she was in at the time. And yet we didn't get a single email from someone saying, I don't care about this person or she got what she deserved or whatever, because she was a whole person to them in that story. She wasn't just a person who had a drug problem who got raped. Wow. Rachel, thank you for, for sharing this. This is really powerful journalism that you're doing, very human journalism that you're doing, which is some of the most important stuff that, that any of us can do. What are you looking forward to doing in the future? Oh, so I'm working right now on some kind of close to the ground community work around COVID-19. I have a, a small grant from some local foundations in Cleveland, and I'm working with a partner, Bree Zeltner, to really engage in a couple neighborhoods in Cleveland around the lived experience during COVID-19 for especially underserved communities and um, Black communities in Cleveland. And I've been going on outreach with one of these community centers, which is one or two days a week where they go and knock on the door of basically everybody on whatever street they're assigned to, and they ask them how they're doing, what they need, what's going on in their lives. And so that's been really fascinating to me because I think that we have seen a lot of top-down stories about COVID-19 because of the, the news cycle and so much is being based on data. And what we've really found is that the same problems that have always existed in these neighborhoods continue and are magnified by you know hurdles created by COVID that have nothing to do with the actual virus itself. And so I think we're trying to figure out ways to, to work on those stories and to tell those stories. Rachel, thanks for coming on the podcast. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you sharing some of your time. Thank you for having me on. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>